invite Brian Lair up, our first speaker. Come on up, Brian. And uh, Brian's a good friend, as well as a fellow kind of pastor here in the Twin Cities. So I'll turn it over to you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Well, my goal is in this first talk is to lay some very basic foundations for a theology of work. It will not hit directly what a theology of work is. That will be the next uh, session that Dayton Dabrico is going to um, go through with us. Uh, so this is very foundational. I'm going to give you more of a big picture. And the, the implications of this big picture will be worked out uh, with uh, sessions that will be coming after me. So give you a heads up on that um, as well. Uh, there will be one primary text that I'm working with. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there right now. It's Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 15 through 20. Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20. At the very end, I'll get to Psalm 150 as well, but those are the two texts, but it'll be mostly from uh, Colossians that we will be uh, engaging with. What I often like to do uh, right before I read God's word, um, this is what we do at Trinity City Church, is to have everybody stand as I read God's word. So go ahead and stand before I read. At the end, I'm going to say this is God's word, and anybody might know this cue, but after that you say, thanks be to God. That's what you will say after I say that at the end, all right? We'll see how you do, all right? We'll see how you do. The letter of Paul to the Colossians, chapter 1, starting with verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominion, dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is God's word. You may be seated, guys. Good work. Let's pray. Father, you have inspired a big text in this portion of Colossians, and all is centered around the Son whom you have sent in this world, and all of history hinges on him, and all of our hope for what's going to happen in the future of our history hinges on your Son. I pray by the power of your Spirit now that you would work in the hearts of everyone in this room and work in the heart of myself as well, that we would worship your Son we would be conformed more and more to his image, and we would see the implications of his supremacy and lordship in all of our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the big questions that you will struggle with in the Christian life is, how do all the parts of my life connect with my faith? All right, it's a big question. Maybe you're wrestling with that right now. And, it's some, and in a sense, I think it's a lifelong struggle and question you will ask yourself. A little, I'm going to share a little bit of my journey of how I've thought about answering this question to see if this is helpful. I think initially when I became a Christian, the way that I thought about how my faith fits into the rest of my life is that life is like a puzzle. And faith and God and church are pieces of that puzzle. And somehow I'm just trying to figure out how do they all fit together. 
All right? Then you have other things like work and recreation and art and education, and those are aspects of the puzzle too, so somehow they just are supposed to fit together. The issue that I started having with this view of faith and life is that it, it reduces God to just a piece of your life, just a piece of your life. And that, uh, over time, proved to be very unhelpful because it seems that God demands and indeed uh, deserves more than just a piece of our life. One more popular way that especially evangelicals think about this question is that you have to think about your life like a list. Not a puzzle, but a list. And number one, you have church or God or prayer and Bible study. That's number one. And then number two, you have your family. Number three might be yourself. And then at the very bottom of the list, you have naps. You know, something like that. So you, you, start, to, you start to make a list of this is the stuff that takes priority. And usually how this works out is all the fun stuff like naps and famous Dave's barbecue gets pushed to the end. Uh, and this is why Christians have a reputation for having no fun. Um, and so this is how you think about your life. The issue that I started to have with this way of answering the question is that it, it doesn't provide another realistic picture. Usually when you make something into a list, uh, especially the way we process things, it, you, you start to say, how much time am I going to commit to that? So if you put your family above other things, if you put your marriage above other things, that means uh, she or your family deserves more time and attention from you. Uh, so if you're putting God at the front of the list, this starts to uh, create some tension because if you're measuring the, uh, the importance of God in your life by time uh, and you associate time with God with things like church and Bible study and so on, it, it's not a whole lot of time that you would give to something that really is number one on your list. It seems that like God deserves more than Sundays and deserves more than Bible studies and even deserves more than prayer, as important as all those things really are. This is how I'm thinking about answering the question now. How do all the parts of my life connect with my faith? I think about it like a wheel, right? Wheel with a hub and then spokes coming out of that hub. And the center of that wheel is the supremacy or preeminence of Christ. It's the triune God of the universe, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right in the center. And all those spokes that come out of the center represent different parts of your life. Your, the aspects of your life that are recreational or art or education, knowledge, work, and one of those spokes will be the local church, is one of them, and they all are structured around Christ because he is center of your life. He, he informs and gives meaning and purpose to every area of your life, meaning it's not an issue of time, whether you're doing religious activities or not, it's that Christ is Lord and Savior over all of life. And then all of life becomes an opportunity to participate with God on his mission to restore and redeem the world. This sermon is going to lay out some of the implications of that view of life. The view of life with, with the triune God of the universe being at the center of every area of your life. The way I'm going to go about it is just answer, hopefully, these two questions. Question number one, what does it mean that Jesus is Lord and Savior? Pretty basic question, right? What does that mean? It's a, it's a common phrase, Jesus is Lord and Savior. Hopefully we're going to start to see today 
how we can push the implications of that theological reality into all of life, especially work. The second question is, how do I orchestrate my life and world around Jesus? So question number one, what does it mean that Jesus is Lord and Savior? And number two, how do I orchestrate my life and world around Jesus? Let's start with the first question. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord and Savior? Look at Colossians again, chapter 1. Let's start with verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Let's go through this. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You want to know who God, the Father, the creator of all things is? You look to Jesus, the Christ, where all the fullness of God dwells, and he is the perfect image of of the invisible God. If God the Father seems invisible to you this morning, the scriptures say, look to Jesus, his Son. That's the image of God. That's where, who you, how you understand who God is and what he wants of you and his calling on your life. He is the image of the invisible God. The, the ridiculous way I think about this is like God the father took a selfie, right? And he put it on the timeline of history, and there it is, Jesus Christ, the image, the image of God in history. God the father discloses himself in the son. Jesus is also the firstborn of all creation. This isn't talking about a physical birth. It's talking about this in a cultural sense for the time that this letter was written. To be the firstborn means that you have rights, like preeminent rights of inheritance and and duties that you get handed down by being the firstborn in a family. So that's how it's talking about Jesus. He has significant rights and privileges because he is the firstborn, not physically of creation, but in a cultural sense. Then you have all these different ways of talking about Christ's interaction with creation. Creation is by him and through him and for him. By him means it's in the mind of Christ that creation happened. Creation is the idea of Jesus Christ. Through him means that everything owes its existence to Jesus Christ. And for him, this is the only place in the New Testament it says it quite like this, for him means that everything created by the Father is to give the Son glory. Everything in the created order is to give Jesus Christ glory. Everything for Jesus. Every galaxy and black hole that the Hubble telescope uncovers is for the glory of Jesus. Anything that you can put under a microscope and see is for the glory of Jesus. Human beings made in the image of God is for the glory of Jesus. Means That means both our lives and all of our relationships are for the glory of Jesus. And not just natural creation declaring the glory of Jesus, but even the things that that human beings can produce from the raw material in creation. Painting, music, highways, buildings are all for the glory of Jesus. I love that aspect 
of what it means to be a human. Human beings are great. Like you, you, can, you can enjoy just like things that creation produces and it's a beautiful thing. But another beautiful thing that God has created is the ability for image bearers to take the raw material of creation and make it awesome. Make it awesome. I thought about, I worked at a coffee house for five years and just thought of what is, how, what is the history of how this stuff came to be because it's complicated, right? The way that I heard it is like some goat in Ethiopia once ate this cherry and started acting a little bit weird, uh, a little little hyper all of a sudden. And the human being or whoever his owner was was just like, well, that looks like fun and tried it too. And they ate this cherry that had a coffee bean. And then eventually over time, they're thinking, well, we'll roast it. Right? And then we'll break it up and pour hot water through it. And it made this beautiful, sweet nectar that will be part of the new heaven and the new earth called coffee that so many of you love and enjoy right now. And then we even decided we're going we're gonna to not put cold milk necessarily. We're going to steam milk at a certain temperature and make, make really condensed, pressurized shots of this stuff and put it in the milk. And sometimes we're gonna we're gonna mix it up with some honey and cinnamon. We're gonna call that a miel. Like this is this is stuff that the creation that God has given us is capable of, combined with the image bearing, producing culture that comes from you as a human being. This is the type of wonderful world that God has created, and cafe miels exist for the glory of Jesus. The last verse, verse 17, also says that Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together, meaning that our existence in this moment right now owes its existence to Jesus Christ. We breathe, our atoms are holding together. We are existing right now because Jesus is sustaining creation. Therefore, this is the implication of that, Jesus is Lord of the spiritual and as well as the physical. This is talking about the supremacy or preeminence of Christ over all of creation, meaning spiritual and physical, right? There's a, a, a tendency that evangelicals have, or religious people, to start to have a sort of dualism in your life where spiritual is good, physical, bad. Religious, good. Worldly, Bad, which is so odd because some of the most foundational beliefs of the Christian faith push back on that type of dualism. The Christian faith believes in creation of the physical things as well as the spiritual. Incarnation, that the Son of Man put on flesh. Resurrection, that Jesus was raised from the dead not only spiritually but also physically. We also have a hope that one day God will create not only a new heaven but a new earth. It's odd that we start to live a life where the spiritual things are more superior than the physical things and the religious things are more superior than the worldly things, the things of earth. All right? Any of you watch uh, Jimmy Fallon, by the way? Anybody a fan of Jimmy Fallon? He has this character, a uh, female character that he does uh, named Sarah. And the way he says it, it's Sarah without the H because H's are ah. Right? You know, you know what bit I'm talking about? That's, how, that's like an impulse that some evangelicals have to things that are worldly or physical. You think like Bible study, good. Studying economics, ah, 
right? You think prayer, prayer is good. Naps, ah, right? That's like, you get around like a really religious person and they're like, yeah, I spent all morning praying. And you're like, well, I slept in. And you feel like a scumbag, right? <laughs> and it's just like, this doesn't make sense, right? Of some of these foundational doctrines. Some people go to church, right? I went to church and then you say, well, I, I love my work. It'll work out, right? It's just like, well, how did this happen? How did this happen? Because if Jesus is Lord over all creation, it means he's Lord over the spiritual as well as the physical, and the physical matters. The physical matters. Let's look at verse 18 and consider how Jesus is preeminent in the new creation as well. And he is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is the head of the church. It means that Jesus is the ultimate authority in sustaining presence of the church. The church owes its existence to Jesus, and we get our mission from him. Jesus is also the firstborn of the dead. This is where the hope of the resurrection comes. How do we know that our, our physical body will be raised from the dead one day? It's because the, Jesus is the first fruit of that. It's the sign that spring is coming, kind of that type of imagery. He's the first bud that starts to come out on the tree, knowing that we, we have died in winter too, but it, we have hope that something's going to blossom in all of our lives. He is the firstborn of the dead. He is preeminent in creation, and he's preeminent in the new life, the new creation. That's the implication of this. All right. The first several verses were talking about the lordship of Jesus over all of creation. Now he is talking about the lordship of Jesus in the new creation, and in, at this point, new creation meaning us who are Christians. We are a New creation in Jesus Christ. The old is gone, the, the, the new has come. You are a new creation in Jesus Christ. Your personal salvation is a testimony that Jesus is not only Lord of creation, but he is the Savior of you. The Savior of you as the new creation. Jesus is where the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. He's not only fully human, he's fully divine. And then in the last verse, that in Jesus, God is reconciling all things. All things. This is how big the gospel is. The gospel means that he, that the gospel it doesn't just mean that individuals are being saved, although it's never anything less than that. It's also that God is going to create a world of love. Genesis 21, Genesis 22, a new heaven, new earth, the Father says from the throne, because of his work in the Son, Behold, I am making all things new. So he's Savior not over, only over you as new creation, but in a cosmic sense of the new creation to come as well. Implications of that. Jesus is Savior not only over us, but over this new heaven and new earth that is coming. What what are the implications of that? It means that the gospel is not only personal, but cosmic. It is a big, big, big gospel. 
One of the ways that Christians throughout history have thought about this is when they would move into cities and spread the gospel, they not only wanted to see individuals become new creation, but they wanted to make that city, as much as they could, a world of love, as much as they could, like the new heaven and new earth. Not in an overrealized way, as if that's what it really was. It's always going to be mixed with brokenness, but that was the desire. And so it's interesting when Christians would move into different cities, they would plant churches as the primary thing that they would do, but they would also start hospitals, start educational institutions, and start businesses. And they weren't doing that as something separate from the mission. They did that because it was part of the mission. They understood that human beings are holistic beings that are spiritual and need to be redeemed spiritually, but also we're physical beings that live in a physical world and it's physical brokenness. And as much as we can, we pull that together so that we can flourish in our world. I think about this with even uh, the history of St. Paul. St. Paul is named St. Paul because the first missionaries changed the name from pig's eye to St. Paul. All right? Pig's eye was after like this lazy eye saloon owner that, that liquored up all the folks at uh, the soldiers at uh, Fort Snelling. So that's what, what I mean, you, you Minneapolis folks, I mean, you would really have some pride if it was Minneapolis uh, pig's eye, right? You're just like, yeah, pig's eye. That's the suburb of Minneapolis, you know. I know how you guys roll. Um, <laughs> but the first missionary changed it to St. Paul. And there are other things that you just notice, not only St. Paul and Minneapolis, but a lot of the hospitals around here were started by Christians. In my neighborhood where we planted Trinity City Church, there are several small liberal arts colleges, and each of them were started by different groups of Christians. McAllister College was started by the Presbyterians. There's two Catholic institutions. You have uh, St. Thomas, you have St. Kate's. The Methodists start Hamlin University, and the Lutherans are up uh, with uh, Concordia University because education was part of the mission. And sometimes, especially if you plant a church, for example, in a poor community, one of the best things that you can do in a poor community for the sake of the gospel is not only start a church, but start businesses so that people have a place to work and provide and have that part of their being flourish as well. So Jesus is preeminent, therefore, in all of life. And if Jesus is Lord of all, then all of life is to bring him glory and be part of his mission. That's the main point. That's the implication of Colossians 1, 15 through 20. If Jesus is preeminent in all of life, creation, new creation, personal, cosmic, then all of life is to bring him glory and to be part of the renewal of all things. So then this question comes, how do I orchestrate my life and world around Jesus? How do I orchestrate my life and world around Jesus? Taking this illustration from a couple different sources, but Jonathan Edwards, I used this phrase already, we'll talk about the new heaven and new earth as a world of love. And then there's another source. If you've never watched this, this is a really good resource if you want to go deeper into the implications of this talk. There's a new documentary that's been produced called For the Life of the World, and they use this illustration as well. If you Google For the Life of the World, it's, it'll come up. It's uh, really solid theology packed as um, a hipster presentation. 
uh, like really hipster, obnoxiously hipster, almost distractingly so, but memorable enough that you keep coming back. Um, so something to think about with that. So both Edwards and this documentary would talk about how all of the different parts of our life is like a different instrument. Every aspect of our life is a different instrument, and what's what's helpful to think about in every aspect of life is it's just like instruments, every aspect of our life is unique. It has a different sound. It doesn't have the same sound. It has its own uniqueness and, and almost uh, self-sufficiency in the sphere or domain that it finds itself in. So let's, at, let's think about this in terms of different aspects of our life, all right, and connect them with different instruments. Think about your personal life, all right? Your personal life, we'll just call those vocals, the vocals of your life, all right? Your personal life consisting of devotions that you do with the Lord, your prayer life, your character and your integrity, right? That's an instrument in your life. Think about all your relationships as another instrument, as a, as a trumpet. You have family and friends and housemates. It's another instrument in your life. Think about your vocation, all right, or your work, what we're talking about today as another instrument of your life. Think about it as a, why not, a lute, all right? Anybody play lute still? Anyone? Anyone? Oh, come on. In this crowd, there isn't one person that plays a lute. Um, get after it. Especially Hope. There's not a person that does a lute at Hope yet. You guys, this is really, I'm going to talk to Tim Johnson. Uh, I could have swore you guys would have had a lute at that thing. Maybe even Tim is holding out on you that he learned it in the last year. You never know. Loot is, is your work, your vocation, your career, your calling, your projects, retirement, all the things associated with that. Think about the aspect of your life of knowledge or education. Think about that as like a harp. You have theology, which is part of knowledge, but not only that, science and law, how to make paper airplanes, any source of knowledge, another aspect of your life. Think about art as a, as a cello, a stringed instrument. Creating, cooking, building, painting, producing uh, uh, music. Think about recreation as a tambourine, celebrating, eating, resting, camping, playing, napping, recreation. Think about public life, all right, as a, as a um, we'll say a symbol, or maybe, well, we always need more cowbell, so we'll say cowbell, all right? Public life, volunteering, civic involvement, faithful presence, that type of thing. And then an aspect, and the, and the main instrument um, for God's creative and redemptive purposes is the local church, and why not pipe organ, right? The gospel, ordinances or sacraments, and accountability happening in the local church. One thing that will come in a later session, by the way, is out of all those aspects and different instruments of your life, the local church really does shine, all right? Uh, Trichler's going to talk a about that a little bit more so we don't uh, take some of these, this theological foundation that I have and take it to uh, bad extremes, but the church is one of the venues through which God creates the world, but so are these other things, even though the local church is most important, each one of these instruments or each one of these areas of life accomplishes two goals. The ultimate goal being to glorify God, but glorify God by loving him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Just listen to even how holistic that is. Every aspect of your being, 
heart and soul is to love God or glorify him. And then when it says strength and might, it says anything you put your hand to, work, glorify God, love God through that. Every aspect, every area of our life is to glorify God by loving him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And every aspect of our life is to love our neighbor as ourself, to, to be a gift to our neighbor, to see our neighbors around us to flourish and to thrive as human beings. When each part of our life, each instrument is in tune, that's what it's in tune to, the glory of God by loving him and loving others. Let's look at the other reality quickly here too, though. The reality of the fall and the infection of sin in this life means that these instruments are out of tune. Work and art and recreation is out of tune. Education out of tune. There's, there's this complex issue that we have where there's beauty behind all these things that human beings are capable of, but the other aspect of it is that it's also deeply flawed and, and fallen, right? There's a brokenness and a darkness mixed in with that as well, meaning that the instrument is, in a sense, out of tune. It doesn't sound as good as it could sound. Think about art, for example. Apply this to art, all right? How, how can art be out of tune, and how can art be in tune? How can we understand that? All right, sometimes art is out of tune because it's just really, really bad, all right? It's just, it's, it's like 95% of Netflix where you watch this movie that you, you spend more time looking for the movie than watching it, and then you watch it, and you're just like, eh, kinda, I'm never going to get that two hours back. All right, that's an aspect of art being out of tune. I mean, it's not blatantly evil. It's just waste of, like, that, that didn't add anything to my life. All right? Some art is straight up evil. Pornography is using film and photos and stories in an oppressive way. That is an, an evil way of using art. Doesn't contribute to human flourishing or creating a world of love. Some art, when it is in tune, can expose evil. I think about a recent uh, film called 12 Years a Slave as it exposes the horrors of slavery in a shocking way, but I would say in a redemptive way as well. Some art, when it's in tune, can inspire and give you hope, like the recent film Selma does, for example, of, of covering that aspect of our history of Martin Luther King Jr. fighting for civil rights. The tagline of the movie is, one dream can change the world. It's a film that is in tune because it inspires hope in you when you watch it. So therefore, the other aspect of the gospel is that Jesus came into the world to put it, every instrument back in tune. That's an aspect of the mission of God. Every instrument is going to be put back in tune, and in the new heavens and the new earth, all these unique instruments will sing the same song, will unite like an orchestra or a band to produce, to produce this beautiful, unified song to the glory of Jesus Christ and the Father and the Spirit as well. I'm going to conclude this talk by reading Psalm 150. You can go ahead and flip there, and you'll start to find out where I got all these instruments from. I'm using this psalm illustratively for the point. In the new heavens and new earth, the mission of God will climax in the sense that all 
instruments in our life will be back in tune and unifying to the glory of God forever and ever and ever. Our personal lives, the vocals, will be back in tune. Our relationships, the trumpet, back in tune. Our vocation, our work, the lute, back in tune. Knowledge, the harp, back in tune. Art, uh, a cello, a string instrument, back in tune. Recreation, as a tambourine, back in tune. And your public life, the symbols, back in tune. And the local church, as a pipe organ, back in tune. And unifying to the praise of the Lord. Psalm 150. And think new heavens and new earth as I read this. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud crashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. If Jesus Christ is preeminent in all of life, therefore, all of life is to bring him glory and to be part of this mission to make all things new. And the rest of the conference will lay out one instrument, your work, and how that fits in to this glorious plan. Let's pray. We don't want any point of our life to be off mission or to be separated from an opportunity to bring you glory. You sent your son, Father, into this world so that he would be the center of our life, not a piece of our life puzzle and not a number on a list, but center of our life. He is supreme and preeminent over all of creation. He's the Lord of all creation, and he's the savior of the new creation, both us and a new heaven and new earth that he is going to make. You have poured your precious spirit, Lord, out on everybody in this room. And there is a longing to be a part of something greater because what that spirit is doing in each one of our lives is helping us to join you, Lord, in something greater. The mission that you have called us to, to make all things new. And I pray, especially in the area of work, that we would see how it can be part of your mission and part of bringing you glory and seeking the good of others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.